Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the popular New Books and Medicine Podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a contributor on Forbes, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. His new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published three months ago. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want more information on this book and a broad range of other healthcare topics, you can visit his website at robertperlmd.com. Together, we also host the biweekly podcast, Coronavirus the Truth. Our guest today is Dr. Ernest Grant, the president of the American Nurses Association. Dr. Grant has had more than 30 years of nursing experience as a recognized burn care and fire safety expert. He received his PhD from the University of North Carolina and serves as an adjunct faculty member at the University of North Carolina School of Nursing. In 2002, President Bush honored him with the Nurse of the Year Award for the work he did in treating burn victims after the tragedy at the World Trade Center. Dr. Grant, you're the president of the American Nurses Association. What does that role entail? Uh, That role entails that I serve as the representative of the nation's 4.3 million registered nurses and try to please 4.3 million (laughs) registered nurses (laughs) who has 4.3 million different opinions. But uh, mainly it is uh, is doing advocacy work on behalf of the profession and uh, giving, uh, making sure that nurses get the resources and things that they need in order to provide the best care uh, that they possibly can. That's pretty much it in the 30,000 foot view, I guess. So as president, what are your four or five highest priorities for this year and the one coming up after that? Well, I, I think uh, the the first one is obviously still working on recovering from uh, the pandemic that is uh, is going on, getting Americans uh, vaccinated, uh, providing uh, much mental and physical uh, release that nurses need since they have been going at this pretty steady now for the last year and a half, um, extremely concerned about the uh, mental and physical uh, health needs of, uh, of the, uh, the, the nursing workforce. I think um, addressing healthcare disparities and health equity, uh, that is uh, obviously COVID uh, pretty much shined the, the light on and you know, I'm happy that people are wanting to uh, address that. Also needing to educate and advocate and to, to work together to end systemic racism. Um, we have a, a commission that is addressing that issue, and I'd be happy to talk about that some more later on. And then, of course, addressing the nursing workforce shortage and what that means for the profession, not only now, but moving forward into the future. Uh, I'm extremely concerned about some of the things that are happening there. Let me pick up on a couple of topics that you've raised. Uh, I'm particularly concerned, and I've written about the exceptionally high, three times higher mortality that Black women have giving birth. Um, In many ways, it's the highest mortality in the industrialized world. How do you see nurses in particular helping to lower this and bring it back to the level that it should be for all Americans? That's a really great question. And the way that I see nurses uh, being able to do that is to advocate, which we've always done, advocate, uh, though, even more on behalf of our 
uh, you know, the patients that we care for. Uh, part of that, you could say, may go back to uh, my comment about increasing the uh, diversity within the profession itself. Uh, I think having advocates who are from that community who can identify with that individual and advocate on their behalf. Uh, a lot of times what we see and hear is that uh, nurses and or the patients will say, um, you know, no one listened to me or I was not heard. Um, you know, and of course, if there is a cross-cultural barrier, uh, that creates a, a problem too because of the perhaps the language or the wording that we may use to describe uh, feelings or, uh, or et cetera. So it's a matter of nurses advocating to educate all the members of the healthcare team, not just nurses, but we're talking doctors, advanced practice nurses, uh, PAs, uh, you know, all the way down the line uh, to, uh, you know, to actively listen to what the person is saying and, uh, you know, and then ask questions where you do not feel uh, that you may uh, have enough information and to take the person seriously, um, you know, because nobody knows their body better than that individual. And you only have to look at Serena Williams uh, to know that, uh, you know, this just isn't, this isn't a problem that happens to um, people who are of uh, lower social economic income. It goes the, the whole spectrum. So, uh, and Serena, I believe even uh, was pointing out that you know, she wasn't listened to either. Uh, so, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we get those lines of communications open and, uh, and have those honest, frank conversations that need to be had. I've actually even heard this type of feedback from African-American physicians who not only are obviously well-educated, but are experts in the area of medical care practice, and they too, feel as they have not been heard. So it's a very broad problem. And I do believe actually that the nurses in both the delivery area and the postpartum area have such a vital role to play if we're going to uh, really end what I, I see to be a scourge and a, and a problematic um, outcome that is indefensible for American medicine. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I read a survey this week that seven in 10 Americans see healthcare costs as the number one problem that exists today. How do you see nurses addressing and solving the economic challenges, the growing unaffordability that our patients are telling us that they experience? Well, I, I think part of that could be uh, dealt with by uh, well, in a couple of ways. One, for advanced practice nurses to be able to uh, have full practice authority, uh, if you will. And uh, I, I believe we have that in, I think, 23 states right now. So we need to spread it throughout the rest of the country. Um, you know, these are people who can go into underserved areas. And instead of waiting for an illness to become exacerbated or a chronic illness that may get out of hand, uh, you know, the fact that you have a provider, you know, within the community that can keep a closer eye on things and uh, provide that care that that individual may need, uh, that will help to drive down healthcare costs. Uh, we have seen uh, just with the uh, pandemic and the outgrowth of telehealth and telemedicine, how that too has helped to drive down uh, healthcare costs uh, and still allowed individuals to get the quality care that they needed uh, and still allow them to be able to go to work and et cetera, but they were still very well monitored. 
the other component of that, I think, is being able to address uh, and uh, embrace new innovations that are you know, coming down the pike that helps to make our lives a little bit easier. Uh, but sometimes we need to streamline that a little bit more. If you look at the electronic uh, health record, you know, you think, oh, this is going to be great, but you spend more time clicking buttons <laughs> than you do actually, uh, you know, assessing the patient or, you know, or listening to the patient. So, uh, you know, but still, the, I think, um, and, you know, looking at or taking the best of what is happening from an innovations perspective and how that will be able to uh, allow all of us to work more efficiently and, uh, you know, still be in tune to what is going on with the, the patient is a couple of ways to do that. But I, I still think probably the most uh, significant thing would be to allow for uh, nurses at all level, the, the advanced practice nurse, as well as the nurse at the bedside, be able to uh, you know, the practice to the uh, highest level of their educational preparation. One of the questions I know a lot of people ask is that, are nurse practitioners just as good as medical doctors when it comes to primary care? My primary care is personally a nurse practitioner, and I like him a lot. What are your thoughts around nurse practitioners being primary care providers and the level of care they provide? I think that they have proven themselves over uh, and over again that they are capable of, of doing that. Um, and the, uh, you know, the, the thing that uh, we have to realize that it's a collaboration, uh, you know, it's not, you know, one being better than the other, it should be viewed as a collaboration as, uh, you know, what skills uh, does the nurse practitioner bring to the table that um, would be able to help, you know, that patient for that particular time. I mean, studies have shown that patients uh, generally uh, overwhelmingly love the care that they do get from the advanced uh, practice nurses. And I, I think part of that, though, is from the, uh, the fact that we tend to spend more time with them and actually listening to them. And I think we got that uh, usually before you go back for uh, an advanced practice degree, you have to spend about two years or so, you know, at the bedside and et cetera, honing those skills. And I think that serves us well once you are in, in that advanced practice setting. Um, you know, but uh, again, it's uh, it, it should be viewed as a collaboration. And you know, uh, in in places across the country where uh, nurses are able to have full practice authority, uh, you know, you will find that that works out very well. And also, you'll see that um, you know, healthcare costs are much lower, um, you know, because of the resources and things that uh, uh, you know we may be able to bring to the table to you know to the satisfaction of everyone. You're the first male president in the association's history. What are your thoughts on making the profession more attractive to men? Uh, that was actually one of my goals. Uh, and, and let me, let me uh, preface this with say that uh, I may be the first, but I hope and pray that I'm not the last. Uh, it only took uh, 122 years for, uh, you know, for the glass ceiling to be broken. Uh, but I hope that I have blazed a trail for others to, to follow behind me. Uh, one of the things, though, that I did run on my platform when I was running for my first election was to increase the diversity of uh, nursing uh, because I strongly feel that nursing should be reflective of the people that we serve. And that includes not only uh, you know, uh, increasing the uh, diversity from a color perspective, but also from a gender perspective as well. And we have seen where uh, you know, since I have been president, uh, more and more men have been uh, going into the nursing profession, which is really great. We need to uh, continue that, though. And one of the ways that I had begun to work on that before 
our friend COVID came around, was to uh, try to form a partnership with the Boys and Girls Club of America and uh, ask them to invite nurses, particularly uh, male nurses and, uh, and people of color to come into those uh, programs that they have for kids uh, to talk about nursing as a uh, potential um, that the kids would like to go into. Uh, you know, we have to take the exact same STEM courses that someone who's going to be an engineer or go to med school or a chemist or, you know, whatever else. So, uh, again, just uh, make nursing as appealing to that group of individuals because you really need to start early. You know, if you look at high school or, or you know, maybe as a second career, you know, that's perfectly fine, too. But I think seeing that role model. And uh, I myself, I go into a uh, uh, one of another organization that I belong to. Uh, we have adopted an elementary school, so every chance I get, I get to go in there as well. And I'm setting that example. You know, you, uh, your audience may not realize it, but I am six foot six. Uh, so to see somebody my size working with uh, first graders, second graders, and et cetera, if I can plant that image on a uh, uh, a young uh, uh, male of color that uh, you know, he may be thinking, well, if he can do it, I can do it as well. That's, uh, that's really great. But that's part of the way that I see um, you know, being able to increase the uh, uh, diversity within the profession. How did you get attracted to nursing way back in your early days when you were just uh, coming out of uh, high school and looking for a professional career? Well, actually, uh, my first uh, uh, inclinations, I, I hadn't even thought about nursing. <laughs> I actually wanted to be an anesthesiologist. And uh, my high school guidance counselor, you know, I'm the youngest of seven kids and uh, came from a very poor family. And even if I had won uh, scholarships, uh, I would not have enough to pay, uh, you know, to be able to go to, uh, um, you know, complete undergrad and then go on to, you know, med school and et cetera. So my high school guidance counselor suggested, uh, you know, going to the local community college, becoming a nurse, and then uh, maybe becoming a nurse anesthetist if you still wanted to do that. Uh, so I uh, took that advice um, and started out in a, uh, a one-year program that uh, allowed me to become a licensed practical nurse. And I think probably about three months into that program, I totally forgot all about med school. Uh, I found out that nursing was my calling. I realized that I got such great satisfaction working with my fellow uh, man that way than I uh, ever thought that I would by going on to med school. So as a result of that, I went back and got my baccalaureate and master's and subsequent uh, doctorate each time, realizing that as I you know, went up the ladder, uh, it allowed me the opportunity to do more for the people that I was caring for uh, on a greater basis, not only at the bedside, but also through my advocacy work um, as a preventionist, um, not only within uh, my state, but across the country and, and subsequently across the globe, because I was able to share a lot of the, you know, the wealth of information that I had to try to prevent uh, burn injuries and such uh, on a global basis, not just uh, here locally within the state of North Carolina. I was going to ask you later, but I'll ask you now since you raised it, you know, I'm a plastic surgeon. I spent a lot of time in burn units taking care of people uh, who suffer these horrific injuries. How did you get interested in burns, uh, particularly at the global level? I know a lot about that, too, because I've done volunteer trips about people falling into fires who are cooking uh, uh, tortillas by hand over the fire and other ways that uh, 
I've seen terrible, terrible injuries to children. How did you get interested? Were you a burn unit nurse or? Yes, I worked in uh, the North Carolina J.C. Burn Center, which is affiliated with the um, University of North Carolina Hospitals in Chapel Hill. I was there for uh, 36 and a half years. Um, however, if you'd have told me after I started my career in nursing that I would be a burn nurse, I would have told you you're, you're crazy. You know, because the first couple of years of my career, I started out in a, uh, on a medical surgical slash orthopedic overflow floor and then uh, transferred to the ICU a, a little bit later on. Uh, but then I moved to the um, Durham Chapel Hill area to work on my uh, baccalaureate degree. And at the time, uh, I was still an LPN, and, uh, but I was also a member of the organization called the JCs, which uh, uh, some of your uh, uh, listeners may uh, be familiar with, but they're sort of the equivalent of the Lions Club only for younger uh, people. It stood for Junior Chamber of Commerce. And these, uh, we would do all kinds of um, projects to uh, enhance our community. And one of the state projects that uh, the North Carolina JCs had was to support the Burn Center. So I, uh, when I moved to the area, I figured, well, okay, I'll work in the Burn Center with the idea that I would complete my bachelor's and go back to the mountains of North Carolina where I was from. Um, but again, I started working in the burn center and probably after being there about six weeks, I realized that burns was my calling as well. And I would always ask myself, though, as we see these very young kids come in or older adults come in and realize that these burns could have been prevented, something's got to be done to prevent these injuries. And so that uh, sort of started me on the path of becoming a preventionist, if you will, and working actively to get laws or codes or standards implemented that would um, provide that passive uh, prevention, such as, uh, you know, uh, smoke alarms or, uh, you know, decreasing the temperature of the hot water heater or, uh, you know, doing, uh, you know, a lot of education for the, uh, the public. And that even meant, uh, again, I said I was six foot six, so that meant me putting on a Sparky the Fire Dog costume and going into kindergarten, first grade classes, and teaching kids how to stop, drop, and roll. Um, you know, and it really worked because we would get uh, people who would come into the burn center, and they would say, you know, the parents would say, we panicked, but our kid uh, knew what to do because, uh, you know, they had been taught by uh, either Sparky or people in the fire service, um, you know, how to do stop, drop, and roll, or, you know, how to get out of the house because we would always teach uh, you know, when a fire happens, get out, stay out, call from a neighbor's house or something like that. So those messages, we know that uh, kids absorbed those and paid attention uh, and injuries that could have been a lot worse were, uh, were minimized uh, just because of the fact that those, those kids were quick to think. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning. Now, I've spoken and written about the psychological harm that COVID-19 has inflicted on physicians particularly ones in the critical care and ER setting. I'm sure it's been even harder on the nurses who have had to provide care eight, 12 and 16 hours a day to single patients who would then go on to uh, die as a consequence of this terrible infection. What are the nurses you're leading telling you about it and how is the association working with them to avoid PTSD as a result of their experiences? That's a really great question. I hear from nurses every day about the trials and tribulations that they're having at the bedside. Uh, they are very, uh, uh, on this face, they're, they're truly burnt out uh, as a result of 
you know, having to work, you know, even though we quote unquote work 12 hours, as you just implied, we're actually working 13, 14, 16 hours or so. And by the time, especially if it's a nurse who's working in an ICU, uh, you know, they don't have time to even go to the bathroom sometimes during that 12 hour shift. Uh, they, if they're lucky, they may get 15 minutes for a lunch break. These are, you know, working conditions that, um, you know, that should not be uh, in in such a, a, a situation. So, but yes, and they've been doing this for the last year and a half. So therefore, uh, it is just very emotionally, physically draining. Uh, and they began to pick up on the signs and symptoms like uh, not eating properly or eating too much when they get home, not being able to sleep, or maybe you know, turning to alcohol or something like that, or they find that they're very short with their family members or even their colleagues at work, uh, whereas it's just not there in their nature prior to what was happening. So uh, the American Nurses Association, the American Psychiatric Nurses Association, uh, the American uh, Association of Critical Care Nurses and the Emergency Nurses Association, we all got together and put together a program called Wellbeing, uh, which is posted on all of our websites. And we have advertised for uh, nurses to access that website. It, uh, it starts out with them being able to take a 10-point questionnaire. It determines, you know, am I under stress or not, which uh, obviously I think most of that uh, is uh, pretty much self-evident. But then it also lists things that they can do, you know, like either join support groups or do one-on-one -on -one counseling, or you know, if they want to write uh, about how they feel, or you know, things of that sort. There's some uh, you know, some options that they can do there. Uh, separate from that, uh, the American Nurses Association, uh, prior to COVID coming on, uh, one of the th we wanted to address this problem, uh, you know, that we were seeing on a smaller uh, basis before COVID, and so we created Healthy Nurse Healthy Nation, which is again. A, um, a website that nurses could go to and join. And it talks about, you know, promoting a good work-life uh, balance, you know, eating properly, getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise, recognizing when you are stressed and some of the things that you can do and et cetera from there. So that seems to be uh, working. Although what I am finding though, is that nurses like a, a lot of military uh, uh, individuals and, and some physicians as well, uh, you know, we're good to point that out for someone else uh, and for the patients that we care for, but uh, uh, sometimes it's hard for us to accept that, uh, you know, we are suffering the same thing, uh, but we know that if they continue to do that, it's not safe. You begin to make uh, medication errors, uh, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep and things like that, you create a dangerous situation in the workplace environment that, uh, you know, could be detrimental. So, it's important that all of the members of the healthcare team take care of themselves first so that they can provide the care that is needed at the bedside. One of the best leaders I've worked with is an individual named Greg Adams. He's now the health plan and hospital CEO of Kaiser, the Kaiser half of Kaiser Permanente. And he was a critical care nurse and ER nurse early in his professional career. And he's done a remarkable job leading the organization. I had the chance to work directly with him in the latter part of my uh, tenure as CEO in the medical group. Leadership, as you know, for clinicians is a big leap. You, know, you can be really good at the tasks that you trained in, but uh, to then become the uh, uh, administrative leader, you feel like a fish out of water. 
how is the association developing leaders, training leaders, advancing leaders, supporting leaders? This must be a major part of uh, the work that you do. It certainly is. And it's something that we are stressing even more and more. Uh, one of the things that that I have advocated during my presidency, and uh, as we, uh, uh, you heard me mention at the beginning of the uh, podcast as well, I uh, talked about the National Commission to Address Racism. One of the things that we're encouraging nurse leaders to do, um, either chief nursing officers or uh, at the nursing associations and et cetera, is to identify potential leaders and give them the help and encouragement that they need and serve as mentors. And that means maybe uh, setting up uh, little mini leadership academies uh, so that uh, these individuals can uh, participate in you know, what it means to be making those tough decisions. I encourage chief nursing officers to you know, if they've identified a group of nurses in their facility that, uh, that they think will make future leaders, invite them to come to the C-suite and participate in, or at least listen in on a um, board meeting, and then afterwards talk about some of the things that they saw that, you know, that happened and ask them, what would you do if you were the leader in this particular position or as this topic came up and et cetera? That way you're helping to mold them into uh, thinking on a much higher level. The other thing is that's good for is that it's great for succession planning because you have someone at this point who is invested in the institution and when those leadership positions come open, they have already proven themselves worthy to move into those positions because they pretty well have been exposed to some of the um, situations, if you will, that they may encounter. And so they feel really great about making the decisions that they have made. Uh, and even here in North Carolina, uh, when I was president of the North Carolina Nurses Association, um, I implemented the first uh, state nurses academy uh, which is now has been going on for eight years. And it's a year-long academy um, that will uh, produce future nurse leaders. And they are uh, you know, somewhat like in a, a school. They do have a project that they have to work on, that they have to present. And they interview uh, members of the legislature. They interview other nurse leaders, things of that sort. And then uh, they do present their project. And uh, you know, they graduate from the, uh, you know, the program as part of that. So it is all about looking at the future leaders for tomorrow and you know what they can bring to the table. And if you start them young enough, that's the, the other important thing is you need to identify someone who's probably at the beginning to the mid-level of their career. And that way um, you got somebody who's got some fresh ideas, who is going to embrace innovation, technology, et cetera, and bring that into the picture as well so that the institution itself is staying on, on top of what is going on within society itself. The number of years that it takes to become a nurse has lengthened, uh, I don't wanna say recently, but across time. How do you see this trend and what do you envision in the future? Well, uh, right now, you know, there's such a severe nursing shortage. You know, it's estimated that uh, by even just next year alone, we're going to be down about one to 1.5 million nurses. And um, actually, our foundation, the American Nurses Foundation, is actually just put out a RFA for what we're calling reimagining nursing. You know, what is a, a new way that uh, we can graduate uh, nurses to where they are still, uh, you know, receive the education uh, that they would in tr traditional setting, but what are some of the other um, 
models or modes that we can use that would help that also. Uh, a number of programs, typically right now what is happening either at the university level or the community college level, they're admitting students every quarter, or excuse me, every quarter, every semester, uh, in order to you know, try to turn out uh, more nurses to, to meet the, uh, the demands of the workforce. The problem, however, is that there's not enough faculty, there's not enough clinical faculty, and there's not enough clinical spaces. You know, everybody is buying for the, uh, the, the same uh, space to, uh, you know, to, to get those clinical hours in. But I truly hope that you know, we do need to look at, you know, uh, are there other ways that we can get nurses through the uh, curriculum and you know, to take the NCLEX exam so that they can be uh, you know, certified as a registered nurse and still you know, maintain the, you know, the good quality and confidence that, uh, you know, that's going to be needed once they do begin their practice. From listeners who may not be in healthcare, because we have quite a number of those, uh, obviously, once you receive your RN, it's like getting your MD degree. You don't have very much experience. Uh, you've been done well in theoretical courses. And you've had basic hands-on work. But to develop the skill to be an OR nurse or a critical care nurse or an ED nurse requires a lot more training. And I know that the workforce in those areas is uh, statistically aging, uh, and there's going to be a tremendous shortage of expertise, how, we, how do you see us addressing that to make sure we can provide the excellence in surgical care and critical care that patients need and deserve? Well, one of the, uh, the ways that that is happening now is that uh, um, probably about 95% of the uh, hospitals across America now have what's called a nurse residency program. It's just like what someone who just graduated from medical school would do as well as they do their internship and residency. Um, new graduate nurses uh, would also participate in a nurse residency program, which is usually up to about a year. Um, and part of that, it varies, but typically, in some cases, a nurse has already been, you know, chosen what area they want to go into, if it's critical care, if it's med surge, if it's the OR or whatever. So they are assigned a preceptee or a preceptor, uh, you know, that orients them to this is how things are done here, you know, that type thing. And, you know, that may be anywhere from three to six months, but also during that one year residency program, they are continuing to get classes. They are continuing to do more clinical, if you will, but also um, are taught about, um, you know, doing uh, research and, uh, you know, doing um, quality improvement projects and, you know, things of that sort. So that helps to also help mold that individual to where they're doing more critical thinking as well. They're, it's growing their critical thinking skills and applying uh, theory, which they got mostly in, you know, when they were in school, now that they've graduated, you know, there's that transition from theory into practice. And so those residency programs helps to, um, uh, helps with that, that transition. And the good thing about that is that there's always a system of checks and balances. You know, there are always, uh, you know, speaking with someone, a, a senior nurse or whatever, uh, and have someone that they can go to and ask questions about. Uh, because in a lot of cases, you don't know what you don't know. So in the old days, sometimes before residency programs came along, nurses were, you know, would go through maybe a three or six month uh, orientation program, and that was it. Uh, but they still didn't perhaps encounter all the situations that they may um, need to in order to develop their critical uh, thinking skills. But now that 
we have that, and we also have simulation labs. We can, you know, those things that may not have cropped up during their their preceptorship, we can make sure, you know, go through a checklist and make sure that those are done through a simulation lab as well, so that um, you know they're uh, continuing to develop those skills as well. A lot of people still have the stereotype that nurses are always women. You're a very successful male nurse yourself. And how often are you seeing this stereotype and how has it evolved in recent years? And what is your organization doing to address this stereotype? And are you doing anything to encourage more men to enter the nursing field? Well, um, you know, that uh, stereotype that, uh, you know, that people see, uh, that is still true. I mean, nursing is uh, over 80% white, uh, excuse me, um, um, yeah, and uh, about 80%, uh, you know, female. And of course, that's what you see on TV. So uh, we are taking steps to try to change that uh, by encouraging uh, more nurses of color or people of color to uh, go into uh, nursing as a profession, and more men as well to uh, consider the uh, nursing profession. Some of the ways that, uh, you know, obviously, we're doing that. Uh, I personally, when I have... Um, had the opportunity to speak with deans and directors of nursing programs. You know, um, one of the things I've, I've told them is to imagine themselves when they pull into their, you know, their assigned parking space at their uh, at their place of work. When they're getting out of the car, take on another personality. Take on, um, you know, the uh, you know, like a, a person of color or uh, or a, another gender. And as you're walking into your building, look at what your uh, particular school of nursing is saying to someone who uh, may be from a different background or a different gender, is it welcoming, uh, you know, or do you just see rows and rows of, you know, of, of white ladies who were deans, either the former deans or current deans of the program? What about your faculty? Do you, does your faculty represent, uh, uh, you know, diversity? You know, are there people of color there and are there men on the faculty there as well? Uh, you know, those are things that you need to think about, and and what are you doing to actively recruit people of color, and uh, uh, and men to come to your program? Uh, you know, if you don't see that, then uh, you know, obviously there's a problem that needs to be addressed. So by uh, getting them to think along those lines, um, also encouraging them to reach out and actively recruit. Um, you know, people of color and men into their their programs is a great way to, you know, to start that. I think um, other um, organizations such as the American Assemblies for Men in Nursing, which advocates not only for men's health, but for more men to go into nursing as well. Uh, you know, sometimes it may take someone from the outside looking in uh, to sort of, you know, um, tell you what, uh, you know, what your problem may be and, uh, and how can you go about addressing that. So uh, as a uh, profession and as an organization, ANA is always, you know, pushing that we do need to increase the diversity of uh, members of the nursing profession as well as men. And of course, one of the other things is bringing up nursing salaries, um, you know, so that they are a much more livable wage than they uh, have been traditionally in the past as well. That also makes it more attractive, um, not only for men, but for everyone. I mean, we should be paid a good living wage and not be considered part of the room rate, if you will. That too sort of hinges on us uh, from a professional perspective, being able to uh, truly call ourselves a, a profession. 
mental health is a major challenge for our nation with not nearly enough providers available to meet the needs of the American populace. For people who are nurses, but want to gain more skill and uh, shift their careers into the more psychological aspects of healthcare, what are the opportunities that exist for them? There are a lot of opportunities for that. Uh, you know, there are nurses who can uh, go back to school and get uh, either a master's or a doctorate in nursing practice with a specialization in um, uh, mental health uh, nursing. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, there's the American Association of, of uh, Mental Health Nurses, which you know helps to uh, uh, ensure that as well. So there's there's lots of opportunities that are that are out there. A lot of the uh, university-based programs. Uh, and some of the online uh, programs as well will offer a, uh, you know, either a master's degree in uh, psych mental health or a uh, doctorate of nursing practice in uh, mental health nursing as well. And uh, so there's every opportunity for someone who'd like to take advantage of that. And, you know, mental health, as we're seeing now as a result of the, uh, the pandemic, is an area of very high demand. Um, you know, there are not enough practitioners out there, and um, not only for nurses and other members of the healthcare team, but the, just the public in general. Uh, you know, this country has been under, it's like having your head in a vice over the last, uh, you know, 18 months. And, um, you know, at some point, release has got to come, come about, and sometimes that may come about uh, with someone acting out or, or whatever. So we need to have enough practitioners to address the ever-growing uh, mental health needs across the country. Do those uh, master's programs allow the nurse to be a direct therapist at that particular point, or are there more restrictions on the practices that the nurse can do? It will vary by state in which they uh, the practice in the particular program, but uh, most of the master's-based programs for psych mental health nursing, they are transitioning to a, uh, a doctorate level. Uh, but, um, but yes, it, it will just depend on what state the, uh, the individual may be uh, practicing in, and of course, you know, how that may be governed by the uh, medical society in conjunction with the uh, State Board of Nursing as well. We're seeing a major shift to programs like the hospital at home and virtual medical care. How has this impacted your organization and the nursing profession overall? Well, one of the things that we have done is to, from a, uh, I guess, government slash regulatory perspective, is that we have been lobbying Congress to uh, allocate more funds for public health nursing, which I would lump home health care into that, uh, that segment. Um, you know, public health has been underfunded for about the last 20 years. And actually, I think they're down something like maybe 70,000 positions, uh, you know, during that time. Again, COVID has shown, shined the, uh, the, the light on that, uh, you know, that huge deficit that we have. So we are encouraging more funds be put towards public health so that we can have more public health nurses to be able to go out into the community and, and see what is going on and assess the health of the community. Your listeners have probably have heard use of the term uh, social determinants of health and et cetera, and thinking about it from a nursing perspective, there isn't anything in the community that a nurse uh, you know, cannot assess and apply that to a healthcare situation. Uh, you know, even though you may think housing and you may be going, well, how does housing apply to or associate with health? 
Well, it depends on the type of house the person is living in. If it's a, a house that has um, you know, a leaky roof or uh, there's holes in the walls and things like that, when bad weather comes, uh, comes around, if the person already has ill health or comorbidities, that's going to exacerbate the illness that they have. Do they have enough clean drinking water uh, or running water coming into the house? Um, you know, uh, what do they do as far as with, uh, you know, refuge or, or toileting and, you know, things of that sort. All those are things that will contribute to a, um, you know, those social determinants of health as well. So uh, a nurse who's very well versed in that and doing home health care, it's more than just coming in and looking at the patient and taking their blood pressure and everything else. It's taking in their whole surrounding and understanding their culture uh, and applying that, the best practices to address a healthy situation so that uh, the patient and their family and subsequently the community is able to maintain as uh, optimal healthy situation as they possibly can. And when, when there's um, deficits, then advocating to the powers that be, uh, you know, the town councilman, the uh, uh, the, the, the mayor or whatever else, that you have a food desert here, you have a drug desert here, uh, you know, we need to get, uh, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables or, you know, things like that, or, or operate a clinic, you know, within the community so that people don't have to get, get on three and four bus rides to come to the uh, acute care facility to get the, uh, the care that they need. We can open up clinics on the, uh, the evenings or the weekends that would still allow the individuals to go to work but then once they get off work, they can still seek health care. So those are some of the things that we are advocating and addressing those issues. Because as you mentioned, healthcare is moving from the acute care setting back into the community. And we do need to have more nurses trained in doing community health nursing uh, more so than ever before. You've had a remarkable career. Who are a couple of your mentors? Oh, there's too many to name. <laughs> I think my uh, the one uppermost is a uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Gene Trambarger. Dr. Trambarger was a uh, founding member of the American Assembly for Men in Nursing. He taught at the uh, Alexian uh, Brothers, uh, or excuse me, went to the Alexian Brothers uh, School in Chicago, uh, which was one of the first programs to admit men into nursing in the early uh, early 50s. And uh, I have uh, always relied on uh, and enjoyed the conversations that Dr. Trambarger and I have had. Other um, colleagues, uh, obviously some of the former presidents of the ANA, I still host meetings with them. There are uh, 10 uh, surviving presidents right now and uh, I seek their advice and comments. And you know, so it's, it's nice to get uh, you know, the perspective from, uh, from those individuals. And then uh, several of my uh, you know, professors from, uh, from college, uh, both my uh, undergrad, graduate, uh, both graduate uh, programs as well. Uh, so as I said, there's, <laughs> there's a, a lot, but uh, if there's one person who really sticks out, it's, uh, it's Dr. Tranbarger. Patient safety is a high priority for both your organization and the ones that I've led. Uh, we've done some pretty good progress as a nation diminishing them. In the book that I wrote, Mistreated, while we think we're getting good health care, we're usually wrong. I begin with the story of my father who died from a medical error. So I think we still have a ways to go. How is your association leading the charge to make medical errors a thing of the past? Oh, we have a, uh, a campaign uh, that uh, you know looks at that and uh, again, uh, addresses 
that particular uh, situation. Mainly, um, some of the ways to, to look at it is the, the, the work environment, what's going on, having policies, procedures, or guidelines that when you are getting medications and things like that, having those rules and regulations, if you will, that, you know, is it the right time, the right medication, right patient, et cetera. You know, it sounds basic, but, you know, we still occasionally will hear about someone getting an overdose of a, uh, of a medication or something like that. And it's usually because that person was distracted and uh, they were not keeping their, their minds or, or eyes and ears on, you know, what was going on. Or they, there are certain medicines, as you know, uh, we always have another nurse to double check the dosage and things as well. Um, so just keeping those things in place. And also, as I said, the, the work environment, making it so that it's not a cluttered environment or there's not too much distraction and things going on when you are doing certain things, um, you know, doing that. And of course, uh, reinforcing to uh, nurses all the time that, you know, uh, safety is, is uppermost uh, in everything that you do. So uh, ensuring that they get, in some cases, quarterly, you know, safety updates and things of that sort that uh, they have to sign off on just to ensure that that is being reinforced. So I have a few friends that are nurses at hospitals, and I've actually heard each and every single one of them express that they often think about leaving their job. They love the job, but they're frustrated with overtime that is, you know, more or less mandatory, uh, being short-staffed in their departments and feeling underappreciated when they do go above and beyond. They also have to deal with both verbal and physical abuse from patients quite regularly. What is your advice to nurses who feel this way and are considering leaving the field? Um, I, I hear that exact same thing quite, uh, you know, quite a lot. Part of this is um, you know, what's going on within the, the workplace environment and what can be done to address that to make it, uh, uh, you know, make it a safer environment. Uh, you know, several states, uh, my state of North Carolina included, have laws, state laws that makes it a felony to you know, the hit a, uh, a member of the nursing profession, but usually that's just nurses who are in the emergency room. And of course, there's some exception if it's a psychiatric patient or a patient who may be under the influence of, uh, of drugs or whatever else, but that needs to be elevated to the nurse that's on uh, just a, a regular floor, uh, not only the ICU or the emergency room, but a, um, a med search floor or uh, orthopedic floor or, you know, whatever else, you know, because that, uh, that happens there and they need to be supported by their, you know, their hospital administration when something like that happens, uh, that uh, proper procedures are going to be taken to uh, ensure the uh, safety that that nurse may have. Obviously, staffing is a huge problem, uh, more so in the last, uh, you know, several months as people have decided to either leave the profession because of burnout or to become travelers to uh, make double or triple or quadruple their, you know, their current salary for doing the exact same work that they were doing before. And what that does is that creates a, um, a void in the available nursing workforce. And so, uh, you know, people are asked to work overtime or to work some additional shifts and that needs to be uh, addressed. Uh, actually on September 1st of this, uh, this year, I did send a letter to the Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra asking him to declare a national nursing uh, shortage crisis and uh, to convene a meeting so that we can have uh, the government, public, and private sector to come in and address these issues and come up with some short-term and long-term 
uh, fixes for the shortage that we are experiencing, because this is something that there was a shortage before the pandemic. It has exacerbated since the pandemic and looks like it's still well on the, the way as a, as a result of the pandemic. And we need to address that um, and stop the, uh, the flow that is happening uh, and bring those nurses back who left because they were frustrated and felt that their voices were not being heard. One last question, Dr. Grant. For people in high school considering making nursing their career, what do you tell them? What's the advice that you give them? What's the wisdom that you offer? Well, I generally tell them that uh, I have never regretted choosing the nursing profession. Uh, you know, I've been a nurse now for about 43 years. Uh, that is the best profession and the, the best job that uh, uh, known to man, because there's nothing better than being able to help your fellow man. And as I point out to them, we are, as nurses and as just members of the healthcare team, but particularly as nurses, we are invited into someone's life at a very critical time, uh, you know, when something is happening to them and they confide in us, they trust us with their most, you know, utmost secrets. Uh, and that's, you know, when we are, when we earn that trust, we serve as their advocates, um, you know, we act on their behalf. And then, you know, once they are well, that um, relationship, I, I don't want to say that it's severed because I have patients that I took care of 30 years ago that we're still friends uh, you know, as a result of that. But, but to have the privilege to, uh, to intervene in someone's life during the most critical time and then you know, walking that short journey with them, either to, towards getting better or even if it's to transition from this life to the next, that is quite an honor and privilege to have. And I wouldn't do anything to violate that trust. Anything else that you want to add? If possible, I would just like for the nurses that, um, and for the consumer that may be listening uh, to you to, uh, to know that we, uh, we hear them and that we are working on these, uh, these problems. Um, sometimes it's like playing whack-a-mole because <laughs> something else crops up that requires you know, a, a brief span of attention. But the, uh, yes, the workforce issue, the uh, mental health and mental illness, uh, post-traumatic stress issues, those are things that are remaining paramount uh, on my uh, to-do list. And we are working with those. It, uh, it just takes some time, but uh, we, we do hear them and we do hope to get these problems addressed. Thank you so much, Dr. Grant. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. Robbie, what do you think about what Dr. Grant said? Jeremy, he's a great spokesperson for the nursing profession. And as a physician and a patient, I am incredibly grateful for the dedication and expertise of the nurses with whom I've had the privilege to work. Whether in the OR, ICU, or burn unit, the best outcomes can only be accomplished through collaboration and coordination between the MD and the RN. And both times I've been hospitalized, once after being hit by a car and break my arm, and once after breaking my leg, it was nurses who provided the compassionate care I needed to confront the pain and the fear for the future that weighed on me. I applaud Dr. Grant's commitment to attracting more men into nursing, achieving greater racial diversity, and investing in leadership development. Those steps will help patients experience even better quality and superior clinical outcomes than today. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on both the system and culture of medicine, you can find it at robertpearlmd.com. Congrats again, Robbie, on the success of your recent book. I know it will continue to stimulate intense discussion and debate and improve healthcare for all Americans. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at fixinghcpodcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.